0: Good morning. Good morning. I'll be reading from Matthew 2, verse 16 through 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were th- two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then, when, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping... And great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Well, good morning, church. Good to be here. As Josh said, my name is Ryan. I'm the director of worship and communications here, and it's a great joy to be in my role as the worship director. Uh, to be with you all each Sunday, and worshiping from the stage alongside all of you. And it's also a great joy to be here, uh, to use my gifts this morning to announce the good news of the gospel. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Uh, It's actually my first time ever preaching, uh, so I'm excited. And uh, if I I say anything heretical, you know, it's Pastor Josh's fault for letting me get up here in the first place. So uh, send your emails to him. Uh, Anyway, well, lately... I've been thinking a lot about Christmas traditions, uh, what they mean. And they've always been kind of special and important to me, uh, especially as a kid growing up. Uh, and one one tradition that feels particularly special, significant to me, uh, is the setting up of the family nativity scene as a kid. I think we have a picture of it. Um, and so it's, it's real small. Set and the figurines are really old. I don't know how old they are, but they were really brittle. Probably broke a couple at one point. And um, you know, I don't know if there were giant pine cones next to the manger in real life or not, but you get (laughs) you get the picture. Uh, It was just this real special moment of getting to set all these up and really helped me to kind of imagine what that experience would have been like uh, for everyone involved. Um, Now, if you don't know my story yet, if we haven't met. I moved here to Columbus about six months ago from a small town in southern Indiana. Uh, and so with no family here in the area, I find myself pondering, uh, which Christmas traditions do I want to establish for my family? You know, what what traditions do I want my daughter to grow up with? Uh, so after talking with several of you and, and every, uh, other folks about what they do around the holidays, it seems like... Uh, the thing that most people have in common is that they get together with family for a holiday dinner. And I would say most of us do that, right? Um, So maybe your tradition uh, has always been to, you know, invite the kids over, have the grandkids over for a get-together for Christmas dinner. Or or maybe you've gone to someone else's house, another relative or a friend. And uh, when you get together with family, you... You sit down at the table, and the food looks so delicious, and the decorations are beautiful. Everything's just perfect. But then there's that one relative that shows up. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You know that person who's always invited, and every year they, they come, they sit down, they make snide comments about the food or they start arguments with other relatives or they just generally bring a spirit of chaos to what feels like should be a peaceful family get-together. You know who I'm talking about, right? You know the person. Every family has one. Uh, so looking at the text for today, I imagine people in the account of the infant Messiah all sitting together around a dinner table. And it, it might sound kind of weird, but... That kind of imagining just helps me to see more deeply what's going on with each person. How do they feel about each other? What is it that they want at their core? So as I imagine everyone around the table, you've got Jesus who at this point is a helpless infant or toddler who may or may not be able to walk or talk yet. You've got Joseph and Mary who have really just started their family. And, if you know, the story, there's questions of, who's the dad? And they're being directed and kept safe by an angel of the Lord. And who knows, maybe they're anxious because they've had to up and run off from their home. And then uh, you've got the magi, the wise men, who brought these expensive gifts from far away. And they bowed down to worship Jesus. And, you know, these guys, they're into astrology, and they're probably into some things that we— we probably wouldn't approve of in church, right? Um, Yet the ironic thing is they're the ones who bow down and worship him. How about that? So I can imagine this, this dinner, this family dinner is going great so far. So far. And everything's fine until Herod shows up. So here's what our text says today. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Can you believe this kind of carnage was included in the story of our Messiah's birth, his early childhood? Why? Why? Why was it so important that Matthew included something so horrific in his gospel account? Let's take a moment. We're going to dive deeper into Herod's soul here. Uh, The gospel accounts, they they really don't tell us much of what Herod was like, other than that he was furious about the Messiah's coming. But what could drive someone to such a degree of rage? that they would even think to commit such a heinous, violent act of murder that robbed so many families of their innocent babies. You see, Herod had a lot to lose. His social status, career, money, political position. Herod ruled over all of Judea, during what was arguably the height of the Roman Empire. Uh, he was probably very, very wealthy and had everything he could want. And I think he was so fearful, so afraid of losing it all, so afraid that the Messianic prophecy was true, that he just said, you know what? I don't know where the Messiah is, so I'm just going to go ahead, have all the boys under the age of two Murdered. And that is what we call genocide. Herod's sense of peace, his sense uh, of inner security, they were at such a high risk. And he was scared, and it was just easier to take matters into his own hands than to consider that maybe the Messiah had something better to offer him. And we know from Jesus' own words uh, that the more we have to hang on to, the harder it is to let go and receive Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, In Matthew 16, a rich man comes to Jesus. Uh, He asks what he must do to have eternal life, and he claimed claimed to have followed all the commandments and done everything that he was supposed to do. But he sensed there was something more to it. And so on the story, Jesus invited him to give up everything— he said, Come and follow. Uh, and the rich man walked away because he could not give it all up. And then Jesus said this If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give it up, if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And again in Matthew 19, he says, Jesus told him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So make no mistake about it. Herod, Jesus was the best gift that Herod could have ever received. And yet Herod wanted to murder the giver of life, the savior of the world, the creator of the universe. To what end? It was all to preserve his sense of security to keep the political peace as well as his own internal peace. He wanted control. And so why are we talking about Herod and his motives? Because to a much, much lesser degree, we just do the same things. Because at our core, we we want the same things. We say no to the Messiah what he offers, because we want to have control. Well, we want peace and security so badly that oftentimes it's just so much easier to just do it our way. And, and like Herod, we can, we can lash out when we feel like we're losing control of our peace and security. Uh, but maybe you're not like Herod. Maybe, maybe you don't lash out in anger to preserve your sense of safety to try to regain some kind of sense of control um, maybe you tend to do the opposite when you're when you're sitting at the dinner table around uh, or the holidays and uh, you're with family maybe you tend to avoid conflict and try to appease everyone for the sake of the family's peace um, but is that really peace is that true peace is that the kind of peace that jesus offers well, we're, we're going through this advent series uh, called a scruffy christmas and it's kind of funny right that title uh, but it's it's kind of unsettling because i mean christmas is supposed to be warm and and cheerful and you know peace on earth and goodwill to men is what the angels sing so you know ask the question what's so scruffy about christmas have you ever noticed when the prince of peace Enters the scene. Things don't seem so peaceful. And in this story, we have a king who tried to kill an infant. And then later in Jesus' ministry, you know, people are trying to stone him. And, and you know, eventually, we know we know the story. He ends up being killed on a cross. And like many of our family get-togethers, we desire for things to be joyful, right? We want want peace. We want joy. We don't want chaos or problems. Particularly during the holidays, we want to set those things aside. Uh, But when we look at the account of Jesus' birth, all these kind of horrible surrounding events, we quickly see it was violent. It was brutal. It was carnage. So oftentimes, Jesus enters our lives in the same way. When things are brutal, when things are messy, when things are scruffy. Uh, This event we're talking about became known as the Massacre of the Innocents. And uh, if you really want to stir the imagination, go online, look up some oil paintings. There's a few that are hundreds of years old. It was pure horror, and because the giver of life was born, so many babies died at the hands of a fearful, angry, jealous ruler. Where is the peace in that? Um, I asked earlier, why, why was it so important that Matthew included such a horrific story in his gospel account? Perhaps this story just shows us how deep the world's darkness and depravity go. The sheer horror of a world lost in sin. A world where something so horrific could happen that only God himself could redeem it and save it by leaving his heavenly throne, coming to us like a baby. And so church, the reality is this. John 3.19 says, And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And so, let me ask this question. How many of you want peace? I know I do. How many of you feel like your way of creating peace is actually working out for you? And I think the real question is this. How many of us are willing to set aside our own strategies for making peace, for protecting our own peace, and instead run to the prince of true peace? Uh, This isn't an easy thing to do, friends. It's not a quick thing to do. Turning to Jesus, running to him, surrendering to him, it's not this one-time thing that happens. It's it's a journey of relinquishing. This is slow work. And it takes time. And it, it takes time because the reality is we never stop being human and we never stop living under limitations but church the hope we have in christ it makes it possible for us to learn to relinquish our strategies to accept our limitations and to learn to trust that god's way is better and so what's this hope look like we have in christ uh, John 1427 says, "I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. So Christian, if you want true peace, I invite you this morning, run to the Prince of peace today. Jesus is not promising, in this passage we just read, he's not promising a life on earth without any problems. He's not promising perfect relationships where people live in complete harmony and they never hurt each other. And he's definitely not promising a Christmas dinner where everyone gets along 100% of the time. There's never any relational tension or friction, at least not on this side of eternity. Well, what what is he saying here then? What's the promise? Friends, when when you believe in Jesus, when you trust him, you follow him, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Can you believe that? The same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same exact spirit and power that dwells in you, if you believe in Jesus, if you're united with Christ. That gives me chills. And through the Holy Spirit, we're united with the Prince of Peace himself. And the peace Jesus gives is a peace that circumstances cannot touch. Yes, we're going to experience relational turmoil in life. We're going to experience sadness we're going to experience grief. And at some point, at some point, we're going to feel deeply disturbed by the experiences that we have in this life. There's gonna be, there are going to be times when we don't feel at peace. But the thing about the peace that Jesus offers is this. It has nothing... To do with your striving to make something happen to to manage the peace it has everything to do with relinquishing control of your way and receiving jesus as the way the truth and the life and when your hope is based on jesus and his peace negative circumstances though they will affect you negatively they can't take away the peace that jesus offers Peace that he's promised you so simply put our hope is found in Jesus presence himself uh, I, I don't know about you but the striving the striving to protect my sense of peace it's so exhausting trying to control and manage things in order to, to feel secure it's so tiring so I don't know if you feel that way too but I invite you this morning to lay down your idea of what, of what peace is, what you've experienced as peace, and run to the prince of true peace. Doesn't that sound kind of nice? Wouldn't it feel good to just, to just stop the striving and just rest, breathe, knowing the God of the universe is holding your life in his hand That all sounds so nice to me. But boy, is it sure hard to let go of my way. As I said a minute ago, uh, the journey of faith takes time, and it's slow work. Uh, If you're like me, you've been striving so long to protect your sense of peace that whenever there is a threat, you just kind of default into this self-preservation strategy or a, a way in which you have been implicitly wired to just keep yourself safe. You sense a threat to your peace, and because of maybe some past experiences, your brain kind of just tells you how to deal with it. And then you do it, and crisis averted. So let's have a little bit of reflection time this morning. Uh, how do you keep yourself safe when you perceive a threat to your peace? What strategies do you default to? Uh, for me, uh, when I feel like things are out of control, I, I get kind of short-fused. I, I can feel my sense of peace slipping through my fingers, and I, I get angry because I just want control over my peace. I want, I want control over my own stuff. And then I, I'll lash out at people that I love the most. Uh, maybe, maybe you handle that differently. When you sense conflict or or a threat to your peace, maybe you might freeze up. Or maybe you just try to appease everyone in order to keep things civil, but deep down thinking, this is not the way things are supposed to be. Uh, it's possible that some of us have been hurt so badly by people that we love and trust that it just doesn't feel quite safe to leave your peace in the hands of Jesus. But I'll, I'll tell you this, it's easy to give to Jesus the things that are easy to give to Jesus, right? It takes, it takes real courage to take something that feels vulnerable, something that feels raw, and to give it to Jesus, this requires trust, and again, said it before. Learning to trust this journey of learning to trust it takes time. But you know, the, we get impatient with with how things work with our souls. We, we want things to be fixed quickly, and if we just stop and we think about how God works, uh, you know, the fall, the, the curse of sin in the garden. He could have just said, "Okay." There's sin now. Let me just go ahead and send the Messiah. We're gonna fix this problem right away, and then everything's gonna be back on track. Uh, it didn't work that way, right? And we know the you know the covenant that God made with Abraham, from then until Jesus was born, was approximately a couple thousand years. God works slowly with these kind of things. We can trust him with the slow work of learning to trust, Um, and often trusting God with your vulnerabilities—it's hard. It can feel like Superman giving kryptonite to someone who could just use it against him. But let me tell you this, church: Jesus will not use your vulnerabilities against you. And by the way, if you didn't know, Jesus already knows all of our insecurities and vulnerabilities. He knows where they are. Not only is he not surprised by them, he loves you despite them. Jesus came as a human, and he understands you. He relates to you. So run to him. Well, how do we do that? How do we run to Jesus? And i'm talking about that not just as a as a one-time run to jesus but how do we run to him each day to get practical i think there's a few steps that can help you a few rhythms that help you draw near to the prince of peace Uh, first we must acknowledge what makes us feel like our peace is at stake some good questions to ask. What makes what relationships make you feel uneasy? Is it the Christmas dinner that makes you feel anxious because you know that that relative's going to show up and things are going to get messy? Uh, if you're not sure, uh, it's good to pay attention to our bodies. Uh, do you feel a pit in your stomach when you feel your peace wavering? Maybe you might get a knot in your throat when you step into the workplace. Maybe it's that thing that keeps you lying awake all night. We acknowledge what makes us feel like our sense of peace is at stake. Second, uh, we invite Jesus into it. We invite him into our fear, into our anxiety. Uh, About a decade ago, I struggled with anxiety really bad. I mean, I had panic attacks, I felt like the season was just never going to end, and many times I prayed, God, please, please take it away. It didn't help, and you know why? God is not in the business of getting rid of all of our problems. He's in the business of stepping into our problems with us. Uh, as, as I learned this, I started praying differently. Uh, and instead of asking him to just take it away, just take away the problems, uh, I started praying, God, draw near to me in my anxiety. And when I stopped trying to just, to just take back my peace, to just tell God to just take this thing away, started allowing jesus to enter in making space for him in the chaos things changed for me you see jesus presence was my peace and ultimately when i spent time in the presence of jesus i became more like jesus the panic attacks stopped Uh, now if you experience severe anxiety or or panic attacks Please don't hear me saying to just slap a Jesus Band-Aid on and that all the problems will disappear. It's not what I'm saying. Uh, What I am saying is that in my case, in this experience, inviting Jesus' presence into the midst of my anxiety, it was deeply and profoundly healing and transformative for my soul. So again, first, we acknowledge where the internal chaos is in our lives. And then second, we invite Jesus into it. Uh, Third, we we show up to the presence of Jesus consistently. Uh, Since the beginning of the fall, uh, we as a church family have been focusing on prayer. We opened up a prayer room over here, and we've been participating in a 24-hour prayer watch every third Monday of the month. Uh, through prayer, we, we commune with God. We cultivate rhythms of, of giving thanks to Him, confessing our sins to Him, bringing our burdens to Him. Uh, but just like any other relationship, we also spend time listening, to right? Uh, remember the story of Samuel in the Bible. Uh, when he was a boy, he learned that God was speaking to him. And what did he say? Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So so when we pray, we can quiet our souls, be silent before God. And we can hear him. Uh, We also speak when we hear his word read. Uh, A pastor at the church I came from before this said, you want to hear God speak audibly to you? Read the Bible out loud. (laughs) It's so true. Uh, You know, it feels like a classic Sunday school answer, but we spend time in God's presence by reading the Bible. We know His Word. Uh, that's where we get to learn about Jesus, internalizing the truth into our souls, His promises for us. Uh, but it's where we get to know how God actually feels about us, too. So many of us spend so many years walking around operating out of this lie that God's angry with us, that that he's just waiting for that right moment to just strike us down. But did you know the Bible says that God is singing over you? That he delights in you because of Christ? He's near to you, he loves you. Uh, but you want to know one of my, my favorite ways to spend time in Jesus' presence? It's being around other believers. As I said before, the same spirit that, that raised Jesus from the dead, it's the same spirit that's in you. And it's in every believer. So when, when you get together for breakfast with your fellow believers, you're spending time in the presence of Christ. Jesus says this in Matthew 18, For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. So you want to experience Jesus' presence? Invite some believers over for pizza. When we, as Christ's church, spend time together, we can build one another up. We can share each other's burdens. We can experience each other's joys as well as each other's grief. Uh, So, again, we acknowledge where the inner chaos is, we invite Jesus into it, and then we show up to his presence. So what might our church look like if we did this, if we invited Jesus in? How would we experience one another as a church family? Uh, When we say things or do things that hurt each other, whether intentionally or unintentionally, uh, we can often find ourselves in conflict we know we have peace with God through God well what could that conflict look like does it mean we just say oh no big deal that person was a Christian and they didn't mean it so just sweep it under the rug of course not if we're a healthy church family who desires to be true peacemakers we can do conflict with one another by laying down our defensiveness, because we are secure in our Messiah. Uh, It's not just a formality that each week here we have a time of passing of the peace, of just saying hello to one another. Uh, Our peace with God is so important. We do this each week as as a weekly rhythm, as a church family. So if someone comes up to you and says, Hey, that thing you said to me the other day, that that thing you did, that really hurt me. I feel really hurt by it, and I can't move on, I can't move past it. We don't have to be defensive. We can be curious and listen and say, I'm so sorry my words hurt you. Will you forgive me? So let's not just be peacekeepers who just kind of minimize the conflict, push all the difficult questions away, peacemakers who aren't afraid to have hard conversations people who work to cultivate healthy relationships Uh, peacekeepers uh, this is just to kind of help visualize and maybe reflect on who we are and where we want to be as a church Uh, peacekeepers they minimize conflict they avoid it and again uh, if, if you're someone who you know, if you're the family uh, get-together and there's, that relative shows up and there's all kinds of conflict, it's easy to just kind of manage it. You know, if you have a couple of three-year-olds who aren't getting along, and, uh, you know, what do we do? We say, okay, you, you're going to sit over here right now, and you're going to sit over here. That's, that's managing the conflict. It's keeping the peace because little children aren't able to hash it out in a way that leads to this beautiful reconciliation. Uh, Peacemakers, on the other hand, they engage in the healthy conflict that leads to love, leads to trust. So where do we want to be? How else might running to the Prince of Peace transform our church? Uh, From my understanding, here at Carl Road Baptist Church, for a long time we've put a lot of emphasis on Outreach and I love it. I think that's so great. But I'm wondering what what might our outreach ministries here look like if we practiced first spending time in Jesus' presence? How might walking more grounded in the Prince of Peace change how the people we're reaching out to experience us? What would it look like to live so deeply in Jesus' peace that all the stressed out, all the scared people? On the outside they look at us and say what's their secret i've I've got to find out I, i bet we would be so transformed in jesus presence that we we wouldn't impact people merely based on the things that we do and give i bet we would impact people based on who christ is in us because after all the holy spirit dwells not in just all the activities over here that we're doing the Holy Spirit dwells in you yourself if you're united with Christ. So what might our church look like if we did this? If, if we spent time in Jesus' presence? If we allowed the experience of his peaceful presence to flow through all we are and all that we do? Earlier, I, I talked about holiday traditions and uh, you saw the photo, the that tradition of setting up the nativity. It not only pointed me back to the Messiah's coming, but it points me forward. That he'll come again, that, that the hope we have in Christ, that one day Jesus will come. That he'll make all things new. That he'll establish His kingdom as as a place of everlasting peace. And, And since Advent is about waiting, since it's about longing and preparing for the Messiah, let's set our hopes anew on Christ this morning as we pray together. Would you pray with me? Father, you're good. You are merciful and your unfailing love endures forever. We're grateful to be your people that you've called us to this place. Thank you for choosing in your kindness and your mercy to to draw us near to you when we were still sinners. Thank you for being the ultimate peacemaker. When, When we were the ones at odds, when we were the ones creating the conflict and the sin. You've chosen your kindness to send, send the sinless Savior for us. Lord, would you help us, uh, as we process all this, to, to keep our eyes fixed on you in your presence. Would we be transformed as a people in your presence, God? Thank you for for your tender mercies, for your grace, your love for us, particularly in this Advent season where we can slow down and just ponder on who you are, what what you've done, and what you will do. Lord, we thank you. We trust you. We put our hope in you this morning, and we thank you for loving us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.